The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today is Steve Miller. Steve, I'm glad we could do this. Appreciate your time here. But I don't know that much about you other than people turn to you for a lot of things. So introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Uh, who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing, Carl? Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And this is actually my first space. With all the things that I've done, I've never done a space before. So thanks for having me. Well, welcome. Yeah, my history is a long one as far as the financial markets go. I've been a trader and in the markets for almost 50 years. I became a trader on the Chicago Board Options Exchange at the age of 24 in May of 1974. So next May will be my 50th year as a trader. Also was a member of Chicago Board of Trade, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and a past hedge fund manager. Um, people would say, well, why are you a past hedge fund manager? Well, I really didn't like managing other people's money since I was a trader on my own for all of those years. And so I you know, just went back into my own trading. And then about 2012, my buddies from the floor who started Thinkorswim they started Tasty Trade, so they invited me to come on and do a show, and I did that for about three and a half years, and then I just went off on my own, and now I have an analytical team, and we do shows and education on the video, on uh, the markets, on trading, on investing, create a lot of our proprietary apps, and a lot of people know me as really one of the experts in cycle analysis, which is a very different uh, kind of analysis from what most people do. That's kind of my quick background. So I got to give you a lot of credit because you obviously still love the game, despite how long you've been in the field. I am curious, what, what keeps you excited and, and motivated when it comes to investing and putting all this content out? I mean, it doesn't sound like you really need to do it. No, you know, it's, first of all, it's really been my hobby my whole life. So I'm very connected to the markets. And I started the, this business and grew it very significantly. I started when I left Tasty Trade, uh, I started on my own um, with one assistant. And now we have a team of developers and I have four analysts in the firm uh, and a couple of partners. And so I, I kind of just brought people on that could continue the work that I've done for all of these years and then could keep the Slim business alive, the Slim name alive, which is really about servicing traders, getting traders and investors to do better. That's really what we work at all of the time. And I get, have a lot of, I get a lot of joy out of doing that. A lot of years ago, I became a facilitator in personal growth work. 
So I kind of, a lot of my videos are on the combine the technical and psychological aspects of trading and investing. A lot of what we've created in our, my trading library is a massive one of videos that we've done, but there are about 300 evergreen videos in there that are all about like six or seven different categories of being involved in the market. So I have a, a long history and a lot of love for the business. And if I didn't do this now at the age of 74, what exactly would I be doing? So it's really a hobby for me. And I, I'm at it, you know, every day, but really only work a couple of days a week real hard. How is the the nature of markets from your perspective changed? And I, I, going beyond just sort of the idea of, OK, well, you know, May Day in the, I think, mid-70s, right? Commissions <laughs> started getting crushed and now you've got no commission type of trading. How has the structure of the market changed and what's been most significant in that evolution? Well, that, that actually is a great question because uh, I come from being a market maker on the floor. So that's really where I was born in the business. And during the time, really, you know, our business for me was really making markets, buying and selling. And that's how we made our money, just by making the markets. But I was a very different kind of trader. I didn't like standing in the pit that much. I liked getting out of the pit and looking at the time, which was the Quotron machine. I'm aging myself there. And just trading the bigger swings in the market. And things really changed as you got through the 80s with the crash of 87, where money was no longer easily available for traders. It was super available. When I started as a member of the CBOE with $6,000 of borrowed money and paid 35 grand for my seat. So it was a whole different world back then. But then as we got past these 80s and all of a sudden we got into where the big companies were really involved uh, in all of the trading floors, then the things got tighter. Decilimization, you couldn't, you know, you could no longer trade for eighths or sixteenths. You were now trading for pennies and the dark pools. And it, it became very different where you really couldn't make the money as a floor trader. And you really became much more of an investor or a quantitative trader. You really had to go in that direction. And now as things have really changed as we've moved into the 2000s and what the, what was the direction that our work has really gone into is that you really have to understand market conditions and momentum. If you don't have a good handle on those money flows, if you don't have a way to understand that, you're really going to struggle. Often be on the wrong side of the market. So many traders got killed because they loved being contrarians versus counter-trend traders. So the market was going up, then they just wanted to sell because it was ridiculously priced and they got run over by the market. Same thing on the downside, especially that could be happening right here. So you have a lot of people that are supposedly contrarian traders. Are They're really, you know, to be good at it, you have to be a counter-trend trader. You really have to understand the momentum conditions and what the signals are that things are done going in that direction. And it's become extremely complex. And to be a trader, you really have to be successful. You either have to be completely quantitative and always measuring every dollar of risk, or you have to really have a handle on the momentum in the markets. By the way, I assume you know Jay Petrocelli? I know the name, don't know him. Okay, so I, okay, I only mentioned that because I believe he was part of Tasty Trade maybe in the beginning. Okay, so, so with that point about having a handle on things, it sounds to me that it sounds to me like you think that maybe it's important to have a quicker trigger finger on the triggers to be that you got to be more shorter term rather than longer term. But correct me wrong on that. Well, not exactly. I mean, we you know, the work that we do is for all trading styles, and it really depends on your trading style and that you associate the proper 
style and method together with your analysis. If you're a short-term trader, you're going to be looking at short-term charts. If you're an intermediate swing trader, you're going to be looking at long, you know, intermediate-term charts. If you're a day trader, you're going to be looking at intraday charts. So it really, you have to make sure that the tools that you're using fit your style. So, and if, no matter what, you have to have the proper tools to tell you when the, what the momentum or direction is in the market and when there's information that tells you that something is changing. All right, now you mentioned you're big on cycle analysis. My father was very big on cycles, would reference all kinds of very long cycles, many of which probably people have never even heard of. And I always myself say there's no gurus, only cycles. Because I do believe that the cycle determines the likelihood of success more than the individual effort. Individual effort maybe helps you survive the cycle being against you, which I kind of talk from experience there. But thriving really comes from the right backdrop. Outline for the audience, first of all, what exactly is a cycle? Because it's a word that's thrown around a lot. I don't know if people really understand what a cycle is. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Okay, so uh, a cycle is, and by the way, if they go to my website at Ask Slim, there's a free video on the workshops there that they can get some information on cycle analysis. And a, a cycle is a repetitive pattern that repeats and comes back to the point of origination. As far as those are kind of fancy words for what are what is a rhythm in the market or the heartbeat of the market that comes from the flows of money. And it's very recognizable once you get a handle on how to see it on the charts. So it's really important to be able to look at the charts, be able to see those market rhythms. And in our case, the way we approach the style is using multiple time frames because there's messages you get in multiple time frames. We combine our momentum tools with the cyclical rhythms, support resistance levels, the swing high, swing low analysis, candlesticks. And our, we have several momentum indicators that are really good. So that really helps us understand how to stay in the market. The combination of those things really can give somebody a very good sense for market condition, understanding direction and when that's changing. When you think about cycles, are you looking at cycles purely as it relates to the stock market? Or are you doing more sort of looking at multiple asset classes to see intermarket view on Well, cycles? we do cycle analysis on about 400 stocks on 24 different commodity markets and all of the heavily traded ETFs. So we, we do that work. It takes, we have four analysts. So it takes those, that number of analysts to do that kind of work. And most of the work that we do, even though we have a lot of automated indicators that we use, most of the work that we do is manual. So it's it's a tremendous amount of hours that goes into it. All right, so let, let's get into the commodity side because I think that's a good <laughs> focus on yeah, commodities are, I think, are really quite unique as an asset class in the sense that those cycles are actually pretty predictable in terms of underinvestment, overinvestment. Where are we in the commodity cycle? I think a lot of people were hopeful that commodities would keep running, oil in particular. It hasn't really quite played out the way that I think the narrative made it out to be. Well, I, the commodity cycle is just uh, using that terminology is just way too big of an umbrella. 
when you look at commodities, they're really very unique, unique, different asset classes. I mean, you can look at grains, they pretty much train, trade together, but one grade, grain looks uh, very often different than the other grains do. You have that situation now where wheat is much weaker and the other ones grain and corn are bottoming. So you have a, a lot of different things that are going on. As far as the oil market goes, well, the, the oil market made a very significant low and then ha- was in a rising phase and now is just basically floundering and momentum has turned negative in there. So with the, uh, you know, with the geopolitics that are going on right now, I would say that Oil is not only showing negative momentum conditions, but it is also acting relatively weak based on the geopolitics. Now, of course, if Iran gets in the war and uh, all of a sudden that oil gets cut off, I mean, you could see oil spike up 20 or $40. But outside of that, I don't think it's, it's looking fantastic with negative momentum conditions right now. On the other hand, you know, if you look at you know, the effect of what is likely going to be a slowing economy, you have the the industrial commodities, the industrial metals like uh, copper and platinum looking just horrible. All of the cyclical patterns looking negative, copper or bottom coming maybe a little sooner. Silver is getting dragged up by gold and gold is in a very powerful cycle right now. And I think gold's going all time highs. Yeah, that echoes mm-hmm. the, the own work that I've put out around gold too. That, that, part of my thesis for gold was that if we're still in a bear market for equities, which I've been consistent in that belief, mm-hmm. at the margin, institutional investors will start allocating to gold because there are not that many diversifiers that have non-correlation equities. Gold happens to be one of them. You're still close to the prior all-time peak. So any kind of relative momentum uh, getting sparked by a reallocation would really kind of kick things off. Do you put a time frame on how long cycles tend to last to say, OK, well, if we're entering this new cycle for gold, this should last for two years, three years, a decade? Well, it's it depends on what chart I'm looking at. Again, most of my work is done on weekly, on daily, weekly, and monthly charts for cycles. So, you know, if I look at gold on a monthly chart, gold started its new rising phase back at the end of, you know, only about in 21. So, the the advance that we're having right now is really looking like it's very early. And I could easily see gold rallying well into 25 or 26 as far as the monthly patterns go. So we're probably in the next year, we're going to see a lot of backing and filling, maybe make a new high. But I really think that the explosion in the gold market is going to come in uh, late 24 up through 25, maybe even 26. I mean, I think we could see much higher prices in gold. Do you also do any kind of cycle work on Bitcoin or is there just not enough data there? Uh, Well, I can't do anything long term. On Bitcoin or any of the cryptos, uh, basically we do that on weekly and daily charts. So we get intermediate projections as far as that goes. And the analysis that I have basically right now on Bitcoin, and I have to tell you, I'm inherently negative on cryptocurrencies. And our, our analysis is extremely agnostic. Whatever the charts tell us and cyclical patterns and momentum, we're going to go with that. And I was looking for a move down, one more move to the downside back a few weeks ago to get to about 24,000. It actually missed that. But then I thought it was going to be positive after that. Now it fulfilled that, but there's still upside in here as far as our work goes. So positive momentum conditions, I'm looking for a move up into the resistance between 35,009 and 37,000 with an outside of 42,000, this upside move. 
However, I got to tell you, the, the cryptocurrencies are very likely sometime in coming years to go through a major shakeout. You've got 24,000 altcoins uh, out there. And basically, the vast majority of them have no utility whatsoever. I mean, they're just simply uh, a gambling instrument. Now, you can make a case that some of them have utility now or some of them will, but it's going to be a while before that shakeout comes and we really figure out what the alternative currency is to the fiat garbage that's out there in the world. You're talking dirty to me, dirty to me by saying fiat garbage, so <laughs> we're going to get to that. Okay, but, but hold on. So, so uh, let's go back to, again, cycles. I would myself, and I don't know your view on this, but I myself would view this cycle as being one of the more bizarre ones in that. Part of cycle analysis goes to the name of the space, which is, you know, correlations. This year has been very strange from a cycle perspective, I'd argue, in that usually 30 year of a presidential cycle is strong for equities, except that small caps equal weight. You know, most things outside of Magnificent Seven have been extraordinarily weak, totally counter to that presidential cycle. Co-movement and correlations have been breaking pretty substantially internally in the market from at least the work that I do. Has there, is there any kind of historical precedent to what's played out this year and last year? Because I got to imagine this has been challenging even for, you know, kind of more cycle-driven type of analysts. Well, I think the important thing is, the, is to, to look at what's happened the last couple of decades. You've had a feckless government leaders that have been spending money ridiculously, supported by the Fed's actions, and what that has essentially done has created a has created false prosperities, and with all of that money printed and with the you know zero percent interest rates for all of that time, we have gotten into a period where we need to go into a long reset, a long period of correction. And that is what I think is what we're seeing in the last couple of years. I mean, you look at sixty forty investment, which just absolutely came apart. I mean, that's because the bond market is leading the stock market. And the, the, overall, with uh, usually interest rates go up when the stock market is very strong. But the stock market hasn't been strong. The stock market has just sim simply had a rebound after its bear market. So what I think we're looking at is a structural change in interest rates. And that structural change in interest rates is going to make things very different now and very different going forward because the, we're, in, we're in this doom loop. I mean, the first time that the Fed is going to do react to a, a slowing economy and say, okay, we're going to lower rates, the commodities are going to take off. There is no way that inflation can come down in any significant way. So the stock market investors are facing a structural change where the competition for stocks is here in a big way where it wasn't here for all of the time before that. So we're back into the cycle where interest rates are going to matter for stocks. And if you want to look at very big cycles, I think we're in a secular bear market. I think that's going to align with what you're thinking for the stock market goes. If you go back and look at, I'm going to take you through history. And for those people that want to see this analysis on charts, you can go see my year-end review that I put up on YouTube. The big cycle that occurred starting in 1907 rallied up through 1929. So it was about 22 years. And then it corrected through 1942. So it was about a 13-year correction. The next, the bull cycle came, and that began in 42 or so, and then rallied up through 68. So that was about a 23, 24-year move up. 
and then it corrected through 82. So you had the that long cycle, 1907 to 42, and then you had 1942 to 1982. And each of those corrections were about 13 years. Secular bear markets. They had two or three good bull moves in each of those, but then they got whacked with big bear markets during that time. And that's what I think we're in for now for the next decade, where we're going to have, where we're in this time period where there's going to be rallies in the stock market. And everybody talk about bull market. And everybody talks about all-time highs. Even if you nudge out high, it doesn't matter. They're going to be followed by big bear markets and big periods of where interest rates have to go higher because the Federal Reserve has to correct what they have done over these two ridiculous decades. So secular bear market, I believe we're in now, and we're inside of that in a cyclical bull market that may have another year to it on the upside, but really getting nowhere. So a lot of what you said I do uh, is jive with kind of my own way of looking at things. The um, I've referenced this idea that if you look at a 60-40 moderate allocation portfolio, yeah, you're back to, on a nominal basis, 2017 levels, which is basically suggesting that we're in a basically a, de- a lost decades, yeah. right? And if the stock side then starts to weaken, well, then it, that even furthers the argument that, you know, we're in this kind of prolonged period of frustration and stagnation. I, I wonder if, if the attention span of the average investor today is willing to accept that. It seems to me that everyone's so short-term that they can't zoom out necessarily and think through the possibility that they could be treating themselves sideways for a long time. Well, I think that you have to consider that the vast majority of people have the money with fund managers and their business is to keep them invested. So there's a difference between looking at the, you know, the average investor who doesn't really control his money or the, or the trader or the self-directed investor, which is a very small portion of the investment universe. So mostly people get, you know, very disillusioned during these lost decades because they have fund managers that just absolutely refuse to sell anything. I mean, they just want to hold through it all and then people get decimated by it and then they lose their interest in the markets and you go through periods where uh, investor interest is very low. And I think we're in for one of those. So I guess the question is, why even bother? Why not just, you know, call it a day and go into T-bills and that's it? Well, I'm about, uh, I'm about 85% in cash right now and in T-bills and whatever. So I'm completely agreeing with you. And there's no reason not to. I mean, I've got friends that are looking at the markets now and, you know, selling businesses and got retired. And they're saying, well, why should I have my money in stocks? And the answer is you shouldn't. I mean, yeah, you can pick some stocks that you think are great. And, you know, I think that the whatever the allocation into equities that you used to think was good, I think it should be based on your age group, maybe a third less than it used to be based on what we're seeing, or maybe even a half less, because, you know, 5% is pretty damn good on your money right now. So go, so going back to the cycle point, let's say you did want to play equities. Now, the cycle for the last decade has been brutal for emerging markets, as has been the case for commodities and value versus growth. Mm-hmm. If, you were, if you're bullish on commodities, does that mean that you are just kind of by the correlation to emerging markets? Does that mean that emerging markets are comparatively a better place to be, sort of the seven years of famine becomes seven years of feast type of argument, or is that part of the marketplace still challenged? You know, when you look at the percentage decline that there's been in the emerging markets versus the U.S. markets, I think there's a case to be made for a trade. 
you know, and that there could easily be, you know, overperformance in there while the U.S. stock market, you know, ticks up 10 or 15 percent. You could get a 30 or 40 percent upside move in some of the emerging markets. EEM itself, you know, has got a, a pretty good prospect of trading back over 43. And right now it's about 36 something. So, you know, there's opportunity there, but it's you've got to be nimble and you really have to understand that you're not in this any for the long term. I think that anybody who looks at rallies and gets excited and says, well, now is the time to get in here. I think that's the time that they have to think again and think that they're, you know, they're getting too excited at the wrong time. And I think we're going to see very choppy markets over the next decade, lots and lots of big swings. And that's going to mean that you have to either be nimble as a self-directed investor, you have to, or you have to, you know, really vet out your money managers to the ones that are willing to sell in rising markets and to reduce your risk and to keep you in, in, in allocations that have a mix in there that take advantage of these higher interest rates. But it's a fine line, right? between being nimble and then over-trading? Very fine line. It really, you know, it really depends on, you know, what your own holding period is, what your style is. The average person out there is not going to be comfortable with a big turnover in, the, in their positions, nor are they educated enough to do so. Yeah, and, and that's why, where I think this has to be even more challenging. I, so you may have seen these studies too, but there's a lot of interesting studies that show that those that tend to have better longer-term performance are those that tend to not look at their account. To yeah, not that's, be nimble and not even bother, right? It's kind of the phantom account argument. Those that are debt tend to have better performance in their portfolios than those that are alive and actively trading. That's true in the world where the Fed is elevating everything and the money spending is elevating everything, where that's over with. No, that's fair. That's fair. I don't necessarily, it's just, I guess what I'm trying to get at is you often hear that, you know, traders need to be nimble, but it's not clear how that, what that actually means in practice, because most traders, you and I both know, tend to lose money over time. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, they do. And the reason is because there's uh, emotional aspects that come into trading. So we're talking about trading now versus investing. And uh, generally, it's the the reason that they don't do well is because their win-loss percentages are way off. And they don't know how to get them in line with the way they should be. We always talk about that, you know, if you're an active trader, and you have 1.3 times as many wins as losses, and your average law, a win is 1.3 times what your average loss is, you're going to get rich. I mean, it's just that easy. But the problem is that people can't get to those levels of win-loss because emotions come in there. And that the emotions are not about trading. They're not even about the markets. They're about their life. And they can't figure out how to uh, end the contamination that's going on between their real life and the things that they have to answer to in life or that they have in the past and actually in how they engage in the markets. That takes a lot of personal work to be able to separate that. And that's why traders don't do well on average. I also get the sense that a lot of traders don't do well because they overcomplicate things, right? They track way too many indicators and either there's analysis paralysis or they're following things which you can't really prove work. 
for you, given your long career as a trader, what are some of the things that you tend to always go back to? And do you tend to fear more of a simplistic approach or more complex? Very simplistic. I mean, I if you're looking at a chart and you've got things that are fighting against each other on the chart, and that has that keeps you from being able to 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 engage in a way that is confident and that you can hold on to positions and add to positions that are winners appropriately. If you're not able to do that, then you're really going to suffer. So you have to really keep the charts as simple as possible. Our charts are actually fairly simple, even though they look very busy because of all the drawings on them. But they're very readable and very understandable once you put the work into understanding them. So, you know, uh, I think that traders that use oscillators have to be extremely careful because those are always ways that people tend to trade the market and fade the market and fade the moves. We do not encourage using a lot of oscillators because that really messes uh, a trader up in a big way. Much more important to have momentum indicators that really can keep you in the moves and tell you when the momentum is over and to reduce your risk and to get out. And to to have a risk have pers- risk parameters that really makes sense. I always say there's two things, and I use this in my trading. You have to number one have some maximum risk in any position, and that's really mandatory. You lose that number, you're out. Number two, the in the analysis has to always support your position. If you do analysis, you have some motivation for doing something, and all of a sudden that changes. Even if you haven't you know, made any money or you haven't lost the maximum, you should really be out of the position or adjusting it. There's no reason that you should be in positions that aren't working because there's so many choices you can have of trades that you put on. So, and I believe in in having a trader having a decent sized universe. So you're not always stuck trading the same thing. People that are trading, you know, E-mini S&Ps and NASDAQ all day long, back and forth and selling the pops and buying the dips, they really struggle. They burn up their accounts like crazy because they think they're really being safe, but being safe is really being dangerous. I mean, just reset the room for the remaining comments. Everybody, please make sure you follow Steve Miller here on X. If you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be in podcast under Lee Lag Live on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. All right, so given your many years trading, I want to hear some war stories. And maybe talk through some of your more memorable uh, winning trades, and then that's some of your more memorable losing trades. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I have to go back and dig into the mental archives on this. My most memorable trade, day trade. Now, I'm going to tell you this, and most people are going to not believe this when I say it, but this is absolutely the truth. This was back in 1984, I think it was. And uh, I was trading off the floor. I had left the floor. And the market really looked strong to me. The momentum looked really good. And I was looking at the market potentially rallying. At this time, you know, volumes were very different than what they are now. And if the market moved, if the Dow moved 10 points, it was a big move. Well, on this particular day, I saw the market moving up. And I had bought S&Ps, about a 20 lot of the big contract back then, which is a good number. And then I saw IBM was extremely strong, and we always followed IBM. That was the market leader at the time. And I said, this market really feels like it's going up. So I bought some IBM, and I had these 20 lot long of the big contracts. That's like 100 minis right now. And I bought 300 out-of-the-money calls in the OEX at seven sixteenths of a dollar. Pretty big position. 
The next thing I saw was the market moving up. And I said, this really feels right. And I was always a cannonballer. I mean, I was going for the home run if I had the opportunity to do it. And I bought another 300 calls. So I had 600 long calls, 20 long S&Ps and long IBM. The market closed up $29, the Dow. That was a giant move. I made $279,000 on that position. 279000 and that certainly made for a great year having done that. That was which, which, which my a lot best of money trade. today. It's a lot of money today, but way more money back then. Yes, absolutely. And in uh, 1978 is my worst story, which is a day where there was some news that came out from the Fed on the previous day. It was in November. I had a huge position on. It was on the short side, and I made two hundred and twenty-nine thousand dollars on that day. The next day, the Fed, I think it was raised interest rates a point. I'm really struggling with the exact thing that happened. The, I hadn't taken all the profits. The market soared on the upside. They had a short position. And I had made $229,000 on that previous day. I sold into the rally as it moved up and then lost 234000 that day. So a net loss in the two days of five grand. I actually took a month off after that. It was so shocking. So th those were my two best and worst stories that I can tell you. Most of my swings and most of my trading back then was pretty wild. I was really a gunslinger, but nothing that really measured up to those two. Before I get to some of the audience, I, I am curious, is that something you typically would recommend when you're going through you know, a, a drawdown to just take a break? Absolutely. I mean, I've done that so many times in my career where I took a br took breaks because I needed to get my head in the right place. But I can tell you back then, you know, I wasn't the person I am right now. I had plenty of my own issues back then. And that's why I traded the way I did and lived the way I did. But then I started to do the work on that and solved a lot of that. So I'm a lot more mature now and the money I make in lows is nothing like that anymore, especially at my age. I'm much more interested in doing it as a hobby and, and servicing other people. I've coached countless traders and I don't coach traders anymore, but I, I did, you know, so many traders that I've coached and, and I've done tons of videos on, on, on the style and strategy of trading. And I have about 30 something videos in my site on the psycholo psychological aspects of trading. So I've done a lot of my own work and done a lot of teaching around it also. Let's go to uh, some of the audience. Yeah, I'll take your second one first. Natural gas has become almost un, un anal I can't analyze it. It's just, it's been, it was a great for a lot of years. And right now it's just very hard. It's in a slow upward move. Momentum has problems holding on. You can't really get any traction as far as momentum improving. So here it is trading in that range between 250 and 350. And I don't see any reason for that to change for quite a number of months. So it's been very hard to track, very hard to do analysis on. I can see the cyclical patterns in there. They're not really developing in either direction. So I don't have a lot to say about the natural gas market that is very intelligent right now. I don't think I can give you a good good uh, perspective on that. As far as the gold market goes, well, I've been very out there as far as my approach has been, and that has been I've been buying a lot of physical. And I tell people, you know, I buy physical, I have bank vaults, and I just put it in there. And all of the time, I just buy more of it. And the reason is because as a trader, 
if I have a position on and I see something that, you know, looks like it's going to change over the next month or two, well, I'm going to get out of the position. I don't really want to do that. So for me, I need to be holding on to for physical and then figure out how much money I want to trade. And uh, my approach, I think one of the best performing stocks uh, or ETFs over the coming five years is going to be S-I-L-J. Of course, you know, I don't give any advice. So you guys do what you want with that, guys and gals. But S-I-L-J, once silver really takes off, like I think it's going to and gets its relative strength back compared to gold, those small junior miners have the highest, look like they have the highest beta to me. So that's one I really like. So if you, that's what I would say is that I would buy some SIL, SILJ, uh, some GDX, GDXJ, and just have some of that uh, as uh, an investment, small amounts. You know, maybe it's only, you know, five or 10% of all of your assets. Uh, and then figure out what you like to trade, whether or not you like to trade the GLD or you like to trade gold. But I break it down in that way. What do you want to hold? And what do you want to trade? And how, what are your commitments around that? And I think that's the most prudent way to approach it. Well, I think that what's going to happen is that the when we get into a cyclical uh, phase where we could get rising prices in the base metals, I think that they're, those are the windows that they could take off. I mean, there's no reason not to think that copper can't trade $5 again when you get into a, a period of a rising phase. And that, you know, could very well be, you know, sometime down the road. Uh, my analysis on copper on the monthly chart has it staying in this range between, let's say, three and a half and four and a half with a pretty good shot at taking out the lows of three and a half sometime out in the middle of 24. So I don't see the base metals taking off, but I got to also tell you that my analysis on interest rates are such that I don't think they're really going to peak until sometime around March to uh, May of 24. So I think there's an alignment between interest rates and the base metals. The, the correlations are really holding up as far as that goes. So uh, my work shows the bond market under pressure all the way until, you know, right around the spring of next year, even though I think that there's going to be a small rally in here in the bond market and a pullback in, in, in interest rates, but only a small one and temporary and more pressure out into the spring. And I think that's going to keep pressure on the base metals also. And that's why I think silver, you know, will probably underperform gold for still a while, maybe out into that period. The uh, silver monthly momentum is just really weak. And it also has a pattern that suggests out into the April-May period before it really can take off. I, I could see silver trading back down to 21 and then trading at 31 as we get into the spring and then moving up till into late into next year. So I think there's a big trade in silver. And I think that SILJ is going to be one of the monster movers. Well, the dollar right now, my, our, our cyclical work shows the euro and the British pound bottoming right now. And the, at some point here, the Bank of Japan, who are, you know, I think some of the idiots in the world, are going to have to let loose and let these interest rates rise. And the dollar is going to get hammered. For on, on a short term, people, I think, will be very surprised to see the dollar move down pretty quickly. But it's pretty hard to make a case that we're going to get into that total dollar collapse that even I uh, uh, believe is coming down the road right now with the patterns we're seeing. I don't really think there's a dollar collapse coming out until 25 or 26. 
And there's a lot of uh, structural things going on in interest rates around the world that I just are gonna, we're, I think we're going to see a big chop in there. And maybe the dollar gets back up to 110 in 24 before we really get into a period of a lot of dollar weakness. But I think in the periods where the dollar is weak and you get the inverse correlation with the metals, those are windows of time that I think gold and silver could take off on the upside. One thing we didn't talk about, Steve, is uh, cycles when it comes to geopolitical risk, war. There's a lot of interesting things around that. I'm just taking outside of markets for a bit here. Are we are we in a in a in a prolonged era of just constant war, constant increased tensions? I, I've got to assume that factors into the calculation a bit. Yeah, I you know I don't really have a great sense for how war plays into it, but when you ask me the question, it takes me back to 1991. And that was in the time of when the U- U.S. went in with Operation Desert Storm to rescue, was it Kuwait? And that time period that were, the Arabs were shooting scuds at Israel on a regular basis, I was on the floor. People would constantly yell, scuds, trying to get the market to, to fall, to move to the downside. And then, of course, when finally Operation Desert Storm happened and war really picked up for some brief period of time, stock market took off to the upside. I remember it so clearly. So the stocks tend to get ahead of what they think is going to go on. And now with the horrors going on in the Middle East, and this is not going to end very quickly. And I think we're going to see it in the background and affecting markets pretty significantly for some months. But, you know, historically, you know, you look back at the World War II, there was a significant low made in the market in 1942. Of course, the, the, the war didn't end for almost three years after that. The stock market was basically rising during that period. So the stock market doesn't seem to really care a whole lot about bad news in the background as far as geopolitics goes. You know, I think you heard me wrong on that. It's more about the st- a style mismatch with the person's personality and experience and account size. And it's about the controlling them being able to control the risk. When you have a person that is new in the markets and just trying to trade really small and trading one lots or two lots and in the futures, they have a very hard time because they can really be big moves. And if they're using oscillators to tell them when something looks overbought or oversold, they get run over by the market. The losses are bigger than they can handle and they don't get a good risk reward ratio. Now, the other side of that is that if you're an experienced trader, you're mature, you really have a handle on what tools you're going to use and you really have a handle on what, uh, how to manage your own risk, then trading the queues or trading the the NQs or the E-minis, all those, they could very well be a great fit for you if you have that personality that can handle the size of moves in there. I mean, if you look at the way the Russell can move, I mean, that's a pretty good size contract. And you can, you know, that's a very tough one to handle for people that cannot manage the risk. So it really has to be a fit for you. And that's what I think the point that I wanted to make is not that they weren't great traders because they're great traders. And I've been trading uh, S&P since the day they came out, you know, back in the 80s. Zero, zero DTEs are for somebody, in my opinion, that has great tools, a huge amount of experiences, and some pretty good-sized nuts. Is, is, is that, I think I saw it in the CFA curriculum, uh, pretty good-sized <laughs> good nuts as far as the uh, experience. I'm with you on that. And I also think your DT is just uh, another tool to gamble. Um, yes, I do too. 
yeah, it's not free. But okay, so but I didn't notice on your website. So it seems like there's correct if I'm wrong on this. Seems like there's a focus more on the day trading side in terms of the way that you look at things? No, not really. Our tools go all the way from day trading tools, and we're just rolling out a new one right now called the Day Trader Service. And that'll be available starting on Friday all the way through. And most of our analysis is on daily and weekly charts. So we look at a lot of things for the intermediate time frame holder and also for short-term time trade holders. We have Three different variations of, of an app, which looks at even for investors for a longer term period. So it really, we have things for everybody and maybe things for too many people, too many different styles. But we work hard really to be really good at teaching what tools to use for what style that you have. Uh, so we have it for everybody. The core of our work is really on daily and weekly charts. And that is really for the, for the swing trader, for the person that is holding periods of days to weeks. And that's why we worked hard to develop these new products that are coming out now for the shorter term trader. So we've got some amazing tools there. And I think it's really worth looking at. Now, uh, I want to say that we're a membership site and there are four different levels of membership and some standalone tools that we have. So it, I think it's really important for people to just get a taste. I mean, just. You know, sign up for something in a, a level one or a level two so they can really get a sense for what we do. Level two gets our entire video library. There's like a thousand videos in there. And uh, there's just so much that people can learn. And we have a team that just is amazing. We, we're, they're on Discord all, all the time, do a ton of teaching in Discord. We have a, a lot of ways that traders and investors can be notified based on the tools when certain things happen. So there's so much to learn by going to AskSlim.com about who we are. And we have just an amazing team. And I think you'll you really enjoy what we do and spend some time, take the time. It takes some months to really learn what we do. Do you miss the of trading back in the day, like being on the floor? And yeah, did it give you maybe a little bit of an edge compared to where we are now? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Those days are long dead. They were Those were the opportunities to make the biggest, most amount of money. And for people that were not gunslingers like me, they have the most consistency. I didn't have great consistency because I had such big swings. But the uh, lots of people that took a very quantitative approach uh, ended up with very long, successful, stable careers. And those days when the trading floors left and all the things that I talked about changed, well, those opportunities were gone. And then the average trader who was a, a floor trader, they couldn't make the transition. Moving to the screens and all the other tools it took, they just couldn't figure it out. So see, you mentioned the website, but is are the where else can people track them your work? Well, we put videos up on YouTube all of the time. I do a show called Market Week every single Friday where I talk about the markets. I always bring analysis on the stock market. Our team brings different clips on option trading and trading ideas and lots of things that we put out there. Starting this last week, we've switched over to doing our shows live twice a month. So Market Week show, Market Week live is twice a month. There's no show this Friday because I'm out of town, but two weeks, a week from Friday will be uh, our next Market Week live. It's noon Eastern time. And our members will be notified about that or you can watch us on YouTube live at that time. And uh, I think that you'll be fascinated. Go back and, and watch last week's show on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe uh, on there and you'll be able to get a great idea of the style of analysis. I promise you, if you learn cycle analysis, 
you will never look at charts the same way, ever. Everybody, please make sure you follow Steve here on X. I have a number of spaces coming up in the coming days here and appreciate all those that joined. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Have me back again. Uh, absolutely. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.